Um, and I don't say that lightly, uh, but very specifically to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, among the most famous verses in the Bible and uh, probably one of the most committed to memory verses in the Bible. A lot of Christians talk about having a life verse. And that means that a passage from the Scripture that they feel God has given them kind of especially as a promise for their lives or for perspective or whatever it might be. And of all the people that I've ever talked to that have let me know what their life verse is, if they have one, uh, I would say leading very decisively is this particular passage. This passage has gotten a lot of God's people through a lot of things for 3,000 years in human history. Chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this promise. And we thank you that it isn't just something that sits on a page, but it has come from your heart, it's come from your mouth, Lord, and all of the fullness of your power and your wisdom and your love stands behind it. You won't let this promise fall to the ground or fail in any measure in our lives as we just walk with you. And we thank you for the privilege this morning of being able to study it, not alone, Lord, not as an academic exercise, but in fellowship with your Holy Spirit right now in this room. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice and all of the teaching of this passage this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so this morning we find ourselves at the end of one year and at the beginning of another. 2009 is uh, it's a wrap. It's in the can, as they say. And now we're looking out uh, in earnest at an altogether new year, the year 2010. There's a lot of different kinds of people in the world, and, and because there are, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people look at things. And I think that when we come to these kind of measures of a new year and an old year, or these these marks that sometimes occur in life like this, where people are uh, letting go of what's behind them and looking in earnest at what is in front of them, people respond to that in a lot of different ways. And some people. Uh, New Year fills them with, you know, great anticipation, a great sense of excitement. They can't wait for the year to begin and to see what in the world is going to unfold. And, and they love facing the unknown. And uh, when they face the unknown, all that it does in them is just thoroughly excite them. And then there's another kind of, of person where that same sense of the unknown concerning a new year can produce a great anxiety in them. I remember being a young boy, you know, eight or nine years old, and I remember wishing, very distinctively wishing, that I could know the future. I was raised by uh, two parents uh, both of whom were gamblers. And uh, so they fashioned my thinking quite a bit, I'm sure. And I used to think, wouldn't it be wonderful to know what horses were going to win at the racetrack the following day so that we as a family could bet modestly on the winning horse 
and uh, never have to worry about uh, money again. And money was a constant worry uh, in our household. Whatever there was that was extra uh, fed into uh, the horses. And my mother, early on when we were kids, she gave up gambling altogether. But my stepfather continued to bet the ponies all the way through our childhood and really uh, all the way to the end of his uh, life. I don't know of anyone, they may exist, I've never met them, that has ever made uh, money betting the ponies. Uh, I have never met a single person that says this is a, a satisfactory way to earn a living and I'm able to do it. It just doesn't work. But even at that uh, age, as I would consider these kind of things and how nice it would be to know a little something about the future, I also recognized that I didn't want to know everything about the future. For instance, one thing I never wanted to know was the day I would die, because it seemed to me, even as a child, that that, that piece of knowledge would completely dominate my life. Everything would be focused on that future date on a calendar, and thus all of life would be spoiled, and I would miss life altogether if I knew what the date of my uh, my death was. I didn't want to know ahead of time all the bad things that were going to happen to me because it seemed to me that that would be too much for anyone to know all at once. And uh, it just seemed like nobody would be able to handle in a five-minute block the knowledge of all the hard things that were going to come to, into their life in a in, in this fallen uh, world. And the fact of the matter is, is that life can be very hard in this fallen world. And the fact of the matter is it ends up being hard for everyone. And we really only can process it in small pieces. We really can only handle it in increments of one day at a time. As Jesus declared, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. And this morning I as we're sitting here looking ahead to a new year, uh, there might be some of us here who might wish that we could know what was going to happen in the future, what's going to happen in the coming year, and convinced that if we were armed with this knowledge, it would give us, you know, some uh, little bit of peace in our lives and uh, some little bit of peace of mind or a sense of security if we had uh, some of that knowledge. But in this great and famous Bible passage, the Lord offers us something even better than knowing the future as a source for our peace. Because in our text, the Lord promises to personally direct our paths. In other words, real peace is found not in knowing the future, but in, it's found in the confidence of knowing that my life is being personally directed by God. Perhaps you've heard the old saying, um, I don't know uh, what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Usually I don't like sayings like that because they're too clever by half and then they end up sounding corny. But I really like that one. And one of the reasons that I like it is that it's very biblical and it very much represents the heart of God and what he's communicating in these two verses of the book of Proverbs. 
In our passage, we have a single great and I would say priceless promise from God, the promise to direct our paths, the promise of a God-directed life, and then number two, the three requirements of us for fully possessing that promise. And so we begin with God's promise, verse 6, to direct our paths. What exactly does that mean when he promises to direct our paths? In the Hebrew, the word path means a path. It means a way. It means a road. A path is something that we travel on. And, uh, and so often we talk about it as representing our life. We talk about the road of life or the path of life. It speaks also of our direction or of our course in life. The Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word direct means to make straight. It means to make level. It means to make right. That's what the word means. In other words, God is not only promising to direct our paths or direct our lives, as wonderful as that is, but declaring that the path, the life that he will lead us into will be a straight path, a straight life. It will be a prepared life. It will be a right life. In other words, it will be perfect for us. Now you stop and you think about that for a moment, the value of that, to let it just sink in. Imagine somebody coming up to you. They would have, the, have to have the credentials that only God possesses to make the offer and then for us to take the offer seriously. But someone to come up to you and say, I will lead your life and I will direct your life into a life and into a path that is absolutely straight, absolutely right, absolutely prepared for you before you hit it. In other words, perfect. If somebody could offer that and deliver it to you, they're offering something that is priceless to us. And one of the, my, what I consider to be my favorite definition of the will of God in all of the Bible is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul wrote and he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will for our lives is good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. It's acceptable to Him, it is always good for us, and thus it is always perfect. Perfect spiritually. Perfect morally, perfect mentally, perfect in what it accomplishes emotionally in our lives and in our hearts. For the person who is looking for peace in this fallen world, and I don't know who isn't looking for peace in this fallen world, whether they recognize they're on the search or not, I don't know that there is anything in life that is more peace-producing in a child of God, than to know at any given moment, I am in the middle of God's will, 
And he is personally directing my life. That's what God is offering here. That he is willing to take over the responsibility of our lives. The headache of leading our lives. If we will turn the steering wheel over to him. You cannot offer to fallen man in a fallen world something that is more valuable than that. It is more valuable than all of the material wealth found in the world. If someone were to take all of the riches of the world and dump it at your feet and say, you can have all of this wealth or you can live in the confidence that God is directing your paths, that you're living a God-directed life in this world, there would be Really, for a person that understands things, there'd be really no decision to make there. It would be to choose to have God direct our lives. And the reason that that's the more valuable thing is because it provides us with things that all of the wealth in the world can't supply us with. Peace of mind. Peace of heart. Confidence about the future. Faith concerning the future. A sense of safety in my heart. That I am safe in this world because I am in the middle of God's will. The safest place a person can be in in life is the will of God. Now, notice the three requirements for possessing this promise. This is how we cooperate with him in accomplishing this in our lives. He tells us in verse 5, number one, that we are to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This tells me that God's will, that his path won't always be easy because it will require trust. It will require faith. If his will was always easy, we could walk it by sight and not by faith. There wouldn't be any requirement of faith. But the fact that it is difficult, the fact that he does require trust and faith of us, means that it isn't always going to be an easy path. Sometimes we can tend to think that being in the middle of God's will uh, means that there will never be any difficulty in our life. That if I am right in the middle of God's perfect will for my life, I simply bound, you know, from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. I know nothing of, you know, a valley in life, nothing of its darkness, nothing of difficulty in life. But it's not true. You look at the life of Jesus, who declared, I always do those things that please the Father. Always, exactly, perfectly in the will of the Father. And yet his life was anything but calm, for the most part, outwardly. Paul spoke of a great season of of effectiveness for the kingdom of God in his life. And he declared, for a great and effective door has been opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Peter wrote of this, and he said, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There are many people, many Christians, I've met them through the years, that don't believe that you can encounter 
various kinds of difficulty in the midst of the will of, of God. But Peter knew better. You can't suffer as a Christian. Peter knew better. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Yea, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Being in the middle of God's will is the greatest place anyone can live their life. But it isn't always easy. And we need to know that. So when doubt or fear wants to grip my heart, not my mind, talks about our minds in just a moment. Here he's talking about our hearts, our emotions. So when doubt or fear want to grip my heart, here he instructs us concerning our inner man, concerning our emotions, that we are to respond to that doubt or that fear with faith. What in the world is faith? I think the greatest definition of it is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. But faith is the substance of things hoped for but the evidence of things not yet seen. Now, the average person reads that and says, I knew you couldn't understand faith. You just gave me the definition, and I don't have the foggiest idea what you just said. It's a gift. What the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is that faith is living in the absolute confidence in what God has said even when the fullness of his promises aren't seen yet. I like the living Bible on this verse. It puts it this way. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want, speaking of God's promises, is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it. Up ahead. In other words, faith is believing something to be true because God has said it. And so the writer of Proverbs is saying that I need to keep my emotions submitted to the Word of God to remind my heart, to remind my emotions in whatever way I need to, that God will do what He knows is the very best for me in that situation. You have a certain kind of person who has virtually no emotion. <laughs> Don't jab your husband. These are, these are rare even among the male species. But there are certain people you talk about emotions and this and that and all of that. They don't even know what you're talking about. It's every five years they're afflicted with some kind of an emotional thing that happens to them when their favorite team loses or wins. They're just completely, you know, they're all, they, they live in their minds. They feel in their minds. It's all rational. It's all there. So they don't understand this whole feeling side of things. Well, the writer of the book of Proverbs gets to you next. Oh, we'll lay the lashes on you when we get there. But then there's the other kind of person where emotion is how we are prone. I don't speak necessarily for myself, but just to be inclusive of her. But this kind of person processes life supremely on, a, on an emotional level. And so what do we do when that becomes the thing? Because no one can be driven by their emotions to where all the decisions that they are making 
are made supremely on the basis of what they are feeling or on the basis of emotion and can have any hope of giving God any opportunity to direct their paths. So what do we do when what we feel in terms of fear or concern about something wants to dominate our decision-making? We need to bring those feelings back to what does the Word of God say about this situation? What does God say He's going to do in this situation? And then to elevate that reality above what it is that I'm feeling. So one of the ways that we... This kind of person can, uh, as, it, as it says here, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Sometimes it comes with, uh, very often with prayer. The Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, so prayer. But very often it comes with the, finding myself in a particular situation that overwhelms me emotionally. And then I say, Lord, I want to know what your Bible says to people like me in this situation. Because I want, I want to know how you see this situation. I want to know ahead of time how this is going to work out. I want to hear it from you because I don't trust my emotions here anymore. Do you realize that I would say for the average Christian, we memorize Scripture or certain passages of the Bible become friends to us for the rest of our lives based upon this very circumstance, where we hit something traumatic in life, something that's overwhelming in life, and we turn to the Bible for some passage of Scripture that addresses that, and then we hold on to that passage of Scripture like a life preserver, and it keeps our head above water while everything is playing out, and long enough for all of God's plans to unfold in the situation and for His Word to have been proven true. And for the rest of our lives, we anybody even mentions that verse or mentions that psalm, it's like they're talking about our best friend in life. And that's what happens because we are uh, here trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. And that's how it happens. Sometimes it occurs by the Lord, and I ask for this on a regular basis. Lord, I'm in the middle of this thing. And I, I thought by now at my age, uh, things would be over. I would just be like sitting in a spiritual lazy boy chair, and people would just like bring me desserts all day while I watched the 49ers lose. Well, it was a 500 season or what. But it'd just be like you, you hit a point and then you earn your, you know, your stripes and you kind of coast the rest of the way. Life isn't like that. And sometimes I'll just say to the Lord, I, I want the verses and I want all of that. But I'll say, Lord, would you just put a song in my heart? Would you remind me of a hymn? Would you remind me of a chorus, a spiritual song, something that you know I need to be singing about you and to you right now? And it's amazing how often he'll give a song may not even be conscious of it. You just say, why have I sung that song three days in a row in the shower? Because God's given us a song to sing in that season. Very often, when I am meeting with people that are in the middle of something that is threatening to overwhelm them emotionally, the trial is so big, it's so huge. And I will 
when I pray with them, I pray something like this with them. And it never gets old for me. You can pray prayers repetitively as long as you mean them. But almost always I'll pray something like, Lord, we've heard what the experts have said here about the situation. And we're glad for their voice. We're glad for their expertise. We're glad that they're involved in this situation. But Lord, this thing is so big, we've got to hear from you. We've got to hear your voice above all of the other voices around us. And we've got to hear your voice louder than all of the voices that are going on inside our heads and inside of our hearts, Lord. Would you bless these people by bringing some passage of your scripture to their remembrance that gives them your perspective of this situation? Would you bring a song to their remembrance and put it in their heart? And I trust the Lord for doing that in my own life and in the lives of others because we need that louder voice that comes from God, something that's even louder than what's going on inside of our own emotions. The word here for trust also carries the idea of throwing oneself or one's cares upon the Lord. And here we have the element of surrender. And sometimes you hit these things where we're just emotionally overwhelmed by the situation. And uh, you just look at it and you don't have two quarters to rub together to throw it at it, the problem over here. You don't have enough mental abilities to put together to even move it an inch in this direction. Emotionally, you've already invested completely in the thing. You don't have any emotion left over to move this thing again an inch in any direction. And there comes that place in those situations where it's a, it's a moment of fresh surrender to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. You say, Lord, uncle, I give up here. This thing has spent me emotionally. And I surrender what I am of all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength to you. I acknowledge that my life is blood-bought. It's been purchased by you. You can spend it however you want to spend it. You have earned that right. And in fact, if you did not have control of my life, I would have thrown it away any one of a hundred ways by now. I give you my life. You do your will in this situation. And I'm along for the ride. And there is a peace that comes with that surrender. And I think the Christian life is one of just progressive surrender in order to experience God's peace. There should be that one-time surrender to his lordship in our lives. You're my lord, I follow you, and I'm happy to do that. But the Christian life is one of constantly, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, of facing things we've never seen before. We never dreamed it would happen in our families. We never dreamed it would happen in our bodies. We never had dreamed it would happen in our country. And faced with all of these things that we face, that we never thought that we would face, that the surrender that we made to God about some gigantic issue that was emotionally overwhelming us six months ago, that surrender doesn't work here. It takes a greater surrender. And to say, Lord, I surrender to you. My life is yours. Use it for your purposes and your glory in this situation. And again, as I said, Lord, I'm just along for the ride. And there is a peace that comes into our lives as a part 
of that surrender. And so when our emotions go crazy, we need to just stop and remember the promises of God and then freshly surrender to his will for our lives. Notice he says that we're not to lean on our own understanding. Here's a prohibition. Here's something that we are not to do. We are not to lean on our own understanding. You know what this tells me? This tells me that God's will in our life is not always going to be easily understood. We're not going to be able to figure it out all of the time. Isn't always going to be easy to recognize His will as good and acceptable and perfect. And that's real too. Where you get into the middle of something, and even in the middle of God's will, he puts us right there, and you just say, I'm having a little trouble defining this as good and acceptable and perfect. And and yet, it, it is. And what we need to do at those kind of times is we're not to lean on our own understanding. We're not to lean on our own uh Noggin. What is on my own understanding? It refers to our natural wisdom, our insight, discernment, our gut feeling, or uh, our gut understanding of a situation. He said we're not to lean on it. What is when we lean on something? Think about a crutch. When we lean on a crutch, we're trusting in that crutch. We're depending on that crutch. We're resting on that crutch. And God says we are not to rest or to rely or to lean on or to trust in our own wisdom supremely to hold us up in this Christian life. It isn't that we're not to use our intelligence. It's just that when my wisdom calls on me to do one thing, and God's Word calls on me to do something different, then I am to reject my understanding and go with God's direction. And this speaks of the person who recognizes that their best, their wisdom, is infinitely inferior to God's wisdom. Jeremiah put it this way, very picturesquely. He said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. How are you going to get to your car After the service. If you have to walk to your car, you're not worthy of directing your own life. The only one that is worthy of directing our lives is the one who fills all of eternity, all of creation, all of this room, all of this parking lot, all of this city, all at the same time. That's the one who is worthy of directing our paths. If we have to walk to get around, it's just a great... And praise the Lord for walking. But it is a a constant reminder to us of how frail we are and how small we are. Now, I think that most often, God's will makes perfect sense. But it doesn't always make sense. One thing that story account in the Old Testament that always kind of keeps me open to God's ways not making sense is how God led Joshua and the children of Israel to conquer Jericho. God comes to Joshua and he's standing outside of Jericho and he says, see, I've given the whole city to you. 
See, what do I see? I see walls 55 feet high and thicker than I can even imagine. How is this city given to us? God says, I give you the battle plan. Why don't you take the priests and the Levites and all the children of Israel, and for six days I want you each morning to begin the day walking around the city of Jericho. Not a word, not a peep out of anyone. Do that for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to go around the city for seven times, all of you. Not a peep. Don't make a sound. The first sound I want Jericho to hear is the sound of the trumpets. Seven time around, have the priests take out the trumpets, blow the trumpets, and the walls will come down. Now imagine tell, taking that to the Pentagon. Imagine taking that to some military blog online and saying, hey, here's a plan. doesn't make any sense at all. And yet they followed God's plan, and the walls came down and they conquered the city. Because the idea wasn't just to take Jericho. The idea was to take Jericho in a way that he would get the glory, and they would never forget it for the rest of their lives, and their faith would be built up. God's knocking out so many. He's killing so many birds all at the same time. doesn't hate birds. He's knocking a lot of things out. All at the same time. And, and so God works that way. I think of Jesus with the disciples. Three days following his resurrection. After Jesus dies and he's buried and, and, and all, Peter says to the other disciples, he didn't lose his faith or anything, but he said to the other disciples, he said, I'm going fishing. Fishing is what he knew. That's what he came from. He was a fisherman. He came from a family of fishermen. I'm going back up to the Galilee. I'm going back to fishing that I understand. I don't know what the future is with all of this. So some of the disciples said, we'll go with you. So they go fishing. They're not in God's will at all. This is Peter's natural mind, leading and being influential and leading these people. So they go back to fishing. God's not in it at all. He's going to make them fishers of men. That's what God's got planned for them. So they go out fishing, these experts. They fish all night. And what they catch? Nothing. You know the story. Jesus is on the shore. The sun starts to begin to come out so they can see that somebody is on the shore. He can see the boat. He calls out to him. He says, have you any food? In other words, did you catch anything? Hardest thing for a group of fishermen to do is to admit that they've caught nothing. No, we caught nothing. Jesus then gives them the worst fishing advice in human history, he said, throw your nets out on the right side of the boat. Oh, we've been fishing off the left side all night long and didn't even think to fish on the right side. Makes you wonder how big is this boat that you can catch fish on one side but not on the other. They throw the nets out on the right side. There are so many fish, it threatens to break the nets. Peter looks over at them and he says, it's the Lord. And he swims to shore. I think about in John chapter 6, in terms of not making sense, Jesus has come into the world to draw the whole world to follow him. He's got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of followers at this point in his ministry. And there, a lot of them are following him for a lot of very impure reasons. This is the guy that teaches and then feeds you after with the five loaves and the two fishes. He's got a lot of hangers on. It's like a boxer. 
So he's got all these people hanging around, a lot of wrong motives and all. And in John chapter 6, he gets up and he begins to preach to this crowd full of mixed motives. And he begins to talk to them about what it's really going to mean to follow him. It's not always going to mean to be glutted by five fish and, and two loaves. That there's going to be hardship and you're going to have to drink my blood and you're going to have to eat my flesh. You're going to have to partake of the very life that I'm living and the difficulty of it. And the longer he preaches, the more this crowd dissolves away until he finishes his sermon. And it's not a sermon on how to grow a large church. It's a sermon on how to disintegrate a church, the demands that he makes. And he turns around, and the entire crowd has walked away from him. And he doesn't regret a single thing he said. He then turns to the twelve and he says, Will you leave also? What I've said to them isn't open to negotiation. This isn't a popularity contest. This isn't about, you know, numbers or any of this kind of thing. This is the truth about what it means to follow me. Are you in or are you going to do what they've done? Peter spoke for all of them. He said, Lord, where would we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. And when he says... Where would we go? That tells me he had thought about it. And sometimes you reach a place in your Christian life in terms of the noggin. These are noggin people. They make decisions on the basis of that supremely. And sometimes the difficulty can become so great, even in the Christian life, that you can find yourself looking for options to pop out into to get some relief from the difficulty. Maybe I'm speaking to one or two this morning of you in that place. But if you think it through like Peter thought it through, you realize as hard as God's will can be at times, there is no place else to go in life. And that's a good thing. We have, as Christians, been forever spoiled from ever returning to the world and being satisfied. And one of the things that that does is it buys God the time he needs in our lives so we don't bail on him before he reveals the rest of the story and what he's working in our lives. And so... Again, in the book of Proverbs, it says there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. When God does something different from what we would have done in the situation, violates our wisdom, then we can rest in the fact that he has said no to our wisdom in order to say yes to a greater wisdom and to do something better that time will reveal. Then finally, notice he says, in all your ways acknowledge him. The word acknowledge means literally to make known or to make aware. In other words, God says, is saying, make me aware of everything. Not that I need to be made aware, but you have a need to make me aware. You have a need to process what you're in the middle of in life and talk it over with me. And that's what basically in all your ways acknowledge him. It means to talk everything over with him. The word ways, again, it means a path, a road, a route from one place to another, the direction or course in life. The word all, it means all. It means everything. And so what this tells me is that God wants us to be in 
in ongoing contact with him, an ongoing conversation with him in life. It's much easier for him to direct a person's path that he is in conversation with than someone who is not engaged in a conversation with him. And all prayer doesn't occur in the corner of some room where we're on our knees and our eyes are closed and our hands are folded. You can pray on the highway. You need to pray on the highway while you're driving. Keep your eyes open. We can pray and be talking with the Lord about anything and everything at any time of the day or the night or any kind of physical posture that we're in. And so it just speaks of just simple, conversational, ongoing prayer being directed to God. And this is the prayer of the person who wants God to be involved in every decision in their life. I remember an illustration by a pastor. If I mentioned his name, 80% of you would know him by name if, if I mentioned it. And he gave this illustration. I just say that to torment you because you're dying to know who this guy is. I know and you don't know. But anyway, there are reasons. But he told this story. It's a public story and a teaching. And he told the story of he and his wife when they were in their 20s. And they weren't much older than that at this time. I was a brand new Christian hearing this Bible study tape. And he said that he and his wife... They were, you know, had been living in this, renting this house someplace where God had them ministering and all. And they were able to afford something a little bit better. And so they moved from that house into a nicer house to rent and, 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 and all because that's the American way. No need to pray or anything. You move up as you're able to move up. That's just what you do. And that's what they did. They got the last stick of furniture in that house, got everything settled into its place in the house, and they stood right next to each other looking in that living room. And both of them at the same time, it dawned on them, God is not in this. We are not supposed to be in this house. We got here on our own. And what they had before, simpler, lesser, humbler, all those things, but it was priceless because the peace of God was there, the knowledge that they were in his will. And instead they just decided, we're going to do this, it's obvious, and being driven by the obvious, they put themselves in that place. And the reason that I always liked it is, even as a new Christian, I already understood that feeling in life. I mean, you can be in the most beautiful place in the world outside of God's will and you have no capacity to enjoy it because you can't enjoy it with him, which is the pleasure of life. You can be in the humblest circumstance in life in God's will and the peace and the safety and the sense of security that you feel is priceless. You feel like you're the richest person in the whole world. Not rich in goods, perhaps, but rich in peace. And I think that It is this ongoing conversation with God where he's involved in in this conversation and in our decision-making that keeps us in those God-directed paths and makes it easier for him to do that. And I think those of us who've walked with the Lord the longest sometimes have to be aware of this. Sometimes we get a history with God. We've been around the block a few times. And so we say, oh, this situation again. Well, the last time I faced this, God did this. So that must mean that he's the God that always does it this way. 
But he doesn't always do it the same way. I like, I like him to do it the same way all the time. In my flesh, then life wouldn't be very exciting or, or very fruitful. I think of David. We'll get to him not tonight, but next Sunday night, early in his reign. Fought two battles with the Philistines, the enemies of the children of Israel. In these two battles, he broke the back permanently of the military of, of the Philistines to be an enemy against the children of Israel. David, early in his reign, very dependent upon God in prayer. And he came and said, Lord, the Philistines have attacked us. What do you want us to do? God said, I want you to do a frontal assault on them, just straight on, right at them, and I'm going to give you the victory. David did it. God gave him the victory. Smashed the Philistines, a decisive defeat. The Philistines were able to regroup, attacked a second time. David, to his credit, did not say, I serve the God of frontal attacks. He said, God, what do you want us to do this time on this one? The Lord said, I don't want you to hit him from the front. I want you to go behind to the rear. You'll hear some noise like somebody marching through the sycamore trees. That's the signal to attack him from behind. And they attacked this time from behind and now thoroughly routed and crushed the Philistines. God has, he is very rarely is he predictable, but that isn't, any problem for us if we stay current in our communication with him in prayer. So this coming year, we're going to have a great year. We're going to have a great year in God's will. He's going to make sure of it. As we keep our emotions submitted to the superior truth of God's word, as we keep our minds and our understanding submitted to God's Word, and as we involve the Lord in every decision, I can't wait to see what is going to unfold and what He has in mind. As the old saying goes, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and that is our God. And this is his promise. And when he makes this promise, he takes full responsibility in our lives, each and every one of our lives, to direct our lives. When you read this passage and that promise, it isn't a thing of, all right, God's going to direct our path. We've got to huff and we've got to puff and we've got to blow the house down and we've got to do some hand-wringing. To add. God says, listen, you give me this. And I'm going to take you unbelievable places. And I'm going to do unbelievable things in your life. We're going to have a great year together. I carry all the weight of that. You just take a nice, deep, Jack LaLanne breath. Hold it. Exhale. Relax. This is all on him. That's his promise to us. And his promise, because he is the infinite God. His ability to keep this promise, the fact that he will keep this promise, is outside the reach of the federal government. Can I get an amen? amen. Outside the reach of the state government. Outside of the... you got another amen. Probably a louder one needed there. Outside of the 
the reach of local government. And God bless all of them as he's able to bless them. Outside the, the decision-making of Wall Street or this or that and all these things that are mounted up against us. Outside of the reach of our own, the own personal circumstances of our life. He is the one who is able to rise up and he alone and keep this promise in the face of all of it. We're going to have a great year right smack dab in the middle of where great years are found and a great life is found. And that is being personally directed by this God of the Bible whose will is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's stand together and we'll pray.